forests are critical ecosystem service infrastructure for the entire planet and if forests uh, didn't exist then we, <laughs> we would struggle to, to carry on as, as we do. So a recent FAO report suggests that closer to 90% of deforestation worldwide is driven by agriculture. Hello and welcome to the Building Better Business podcast, the podcast that explores how business can shape our world for the better and how we can all get involved and all help. In this episode, we're here to talk about the world's forests and their vital importance for us all. And also how agriculture is a big, big threat to forests and what is being done about it. I am delighted to say we have two fabulous panelists with us today. And so I'd like to introduce them both. First of all, I'd like to introduce Sarah Wakefield, the Head of Food Transformation at WWF. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, John. Lovely to be here this morning. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you for your time. And I'd also like to welcome Stephen Ripley. And Stephen is the Group Responsible Sourcing Manager focusing on forests at our biggest retailer, Tesco. So welcome, Stephen. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Thank you both. And as I said, we're going to talk about forests. I think um, it'd be great to, first of all, focus on the importance of forests and also the extent of deforestation. I think then chat together about solutions. And I think thirdly, make sure we're really focusing on how all the different actors can do things together, because it's not one company or one body or one individual's responsibility, but the way we work together is also a key part to how we change things. First of all, sort of stepping back and um, starting with some of the basics, I'm quite keen to just have a chat about what is it that's so important about forests? And I wonder if we could start with, with your perspective, Sarah. Yeah, so forests are one of the most amazing natural resources that we have in the world. And not only do they provide us individually with a lot of joy and peace and well-being when we go into forests but they are also of vital importance to the balance of the world as it stands and also a home to a huge amount of our nature and biodiversity and if we focus on one forest for example the amazon a forest like the amazon is important not just to the local people who depend on it for food water wood and medicines but also because it helps us to stabilize the climate and we know that around 76 billion tons of carbon is stored in the amazon rainforest so that's all that carbon is captured in there and the trees in the Amazon also release billions of tonnes of water into the atmosphere in a day. And that kind of gift that trees and forests give us allow us really to live in the world as it stands and also has a, a flourishing of nature and other wonderful wild species. So I think we can all think about the individual importance of local trees and woods to us, but also be really thankful for those amazing places around the world that help us live in the natural environment that we do. Stephen, do you want to add to this view of how important forests are to us, not only in their locality, but to us as a, a species, I guess? Forests are critical ecosystem service infrastructure for the entire planet. And if forests uh, didn't exist, then we, <laughs> we would struggle to, to carry on as, as we do. In fact, uh, life would become extremely difficult on this, on this planet. So absolutely critical that we keep forests standing 
and you know particularly the the tropical forests because of their role and their importance in terms of global biodiversity that you know their critical role in in the transpiration stream which is kind of a recycling of of, of rainfall which um is a critical ecosystem service that forests provide and of course um you know much of the crop production in in the brazilian agricultural powerhouses is really dependent on, on that rainfall being consistently generated by the forest. So it's um, yeah, it's critical to our future food supply and, and well-being. We've got some great forest fans here. And um, yeah, it's clear not only are you great fans of forests, but you recognise how overwhelmingly important they are. And I think I then move us from that to what the heck's been going on? Because deforestation has been... I think pretty rampant. Again, starting with you, Sarah, you know, what has been happening with deforestation, I guess? How serious is it? How does it happen at such a rate when I I hear your passion and commitment? What's going on? Yeah, no. And I think we should maybe talk about before we get into the scale of it, really why why mm. why are people cutting down these trees and and why are we destroying um these forests that uh we can see all the wonderful benefits from and i think from a, a kind of most of the deforestation that happens particularly on a tropical area is due to agriculture so a recent fao report suggests that closer to 90% of deforestation worldwide is driven by agriculture and part of the reason for that is that when you first plant on a recently deforested area, it's incredibly fertile. So all the trees and the plants that have been kind of building up the soil mass over time have actually been creating this wonderful space to uh, grow other plants. And so the incentive um, for people that live around an edge of a forest or even for uh, companies that might want to uh, plant in new areas is that if we have um, what we call degraded soil, so um, made soil uh, less fertile and less possible to grow by potentially using uh, chemical fertilizers and over exploiting the soil, over tilling it. Um, sometimes it's easier that than rather um, rebuilding up that soil mass in the areas that we've already been growing in. We can simply cut down trees, which give uh, great income for timber. Um, and then on top of that, plant on this really nice fertile ground. So you can understand why if you are incentivized from a financial perspective, this seems to make really good business sense and potentially as well for um, some smallholder farmers around the world, they might have no choice because this might be the only way that they can subsist in an area. So there's a lot of very complicated drivers behind it, but very simply, the ground beneath our feet in forests is just uh, some of the richest in the world. And so it does give that incentive for wanting to grow things there. So yeah, I think that that's kind of the foundation of of why we are seeing so much destruction from an agricultural perspective. But the the last point I maybe make on, on this is that 
it obviously is really good for a short term period Mm -hmm. but in the long term you're really messing up those water cycles that we talked about so there's evidence that you then impact the rainfall that would uh, make the land itself so fertile and of course you are potentially further degrading that lovely soil that we had and therefore encroaching on the land that we will have available to grow food and crops in the future so it is a fairly short-termist solution to either generating income or generating productive agricultural land. Stephen, on on the idea of how deforestation occurs? Yeah, again, Sarah's um, exactly (laughs) right in what she says. Um, Of course, agriculture is uh, the major driver uh, of uh, deforestation, particularly in the production of beef and soy and palm oil and other forest risk commodities, which uh, when I say forest risk commodities, it's commodities that are grown with a with a uh, a general risk to uh, forests and uh, are some of the biggest causes of deforestation. It's an unfortunate uh, reality, I, I guess, that uh, forest areas often come up against a wall of uh, commercial interest, let's say, which would rather see the land uh, being put into production of crops. But of course, that's, as Sarah says, that's a very uh, kind of um, short-term solution. Uh, without the forest, we, we won't have the rainfall and we won't have the uh, biodiversity which supports that crop production into the future. So we have to find some, some balance between um, sustainable crop production, particularly on areas which have already been deforested previously and have essentially been abandoned. Again, as, as Sarah mentioned, largely due to infertility of the soil when it's been uh, repeatedly used to grow crops and hasn't been nourished in the way perhaps that it should be. So that's particularly uh, referencing uh, the South American scenario and in Southeast Asia uh, deforestation uh, uh, at the moment, it is a much more complex problem in in a lot of ways because it is often uh, small scale, family uh, scale size farmers who mainly maybe only own a few hectares, but of course there there is uh, millions of them uh, and they're increasing their uh, land holding uh, uh, in relatively small amounts, but collectively it adds up to to a lot of uh, forest loss. Of course, that's a uh, Essentially, much more challenging uh, issue to deal with because you've got to weigh the impacts of, um, you know, the uh, and the needs, uh, the the um, income needs and the development needs of the uh, local populations and balance those against the uh, the needs of biodiversity and so on. So it's a it's a very very challenging area, and uh, th- there's no certainly no silver bullets, unfortunately, but um, lots of interesting initiatives going on. It's fascinating, isn't it, how important forests are, but how deforestation occurs and trying to get the balance between the short term and seeing a long term perspective, especially when there are so many different people involved. As you say, with with smallholder farmers, you're talking about millions of families trying to do the best they can and be kind of looking after the, the landscapes they're in, but also as you aggregate up change you know if if behavior is leading to deforestation you aggregate that up and it's it's um causing damage in the long term on a huge scale and um is it getting worse is it accelerating how near to the tipping point are we 
Yeah, it's uh, very difficult to say. I don't think there will be any kind of very clear-cut um, tipping points. Unfortunately, it's in some ways it's almost, uh, uh, I guess, preferable that there is some something very clean-cut, a line in the sun, because decisions can be made on that basis. But unfortunately, it's kind of incremental over time and you kind of only realise you've gone past the tipping point when you see it in the rearview mirror yeah. in a lot of cases. So we have to apply the precautionary principle absolutely uh, and and say, you know, fundamentally as a human species, we, we do not want to get anywhere near that tipping point and we have to do everything we can, pull out all the stops to ensure that agriculture and food production is conducted in a way that is not detrimental to to forests particularly in brazil throughout the bolsonaro administration we've seen that uh, unfortunately the uh, very effective and very good agencies which have so far uh, you know under previous uh, governments in brazil have achieved real really good progress on protecting forests and decreasing deforestation rates. Unfortunately, under Bolsonaro, he effectively dismantled um, many of those agencies and um, essentially promoted uh, deforestation and development. <laughs> um, as um, <laughs> as we discussed in the short-sighted uh, view of what development consisted of, um, and therefore uh, you know, we have seen, uh, as I'm sure many people will have seen, quite a few stories in the press recently about the Amazon potentially reaching or even passing a, a tipping point whereby it becomes a source of uh, carbon dioxide emission rather than a huge absorber of uh, carbon, which it's been in the past. So, yeah, really, <laughs> really critical that... We're all um, laser focused on this issue and uh, that we turn the tide on, on deforestation in, in the very near term. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like the long term is becoming a short term priority, which I guess in a way is a good thing, but um, it feels slightly terrifying as well. One study I know I've seen is that some scientists are estimating if we lose just 5% more of the Amazon rainforest, it will trigger that tipping point that Stephen was referring to. So the Amazon will no longer be able to sustain itself as a tropical rainforest. So this is back to the importance of transpiration and the rainfall, and it will become a much drier and more degraded landscape. But I think maybe one point of context and one point of I guess, hope that to, to throw into the conversation is contextually, it's also worth recognising that we are talking a lot about tropical rainforests today and kind of that, I would call it like the equatorial band where we have that really rich um, kind of rainforest and we get a lot of those uh, commodities that Stephen's referring to, so palm oil, cocoa, coffee, um, soy, all these kind of really rich, wonderful products coming from that 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 lush uh, ground that's recently deforested. But it's worth saying that we used to be a very forested nation in the UK, and of course Europe used to be a lot more forested as well. And to your question, John, about are we seeing things speeding up? Well, this is actually a process that's been happening around the world for many centuries and beyond as humans have settled and chosen to use the land for agriculture. So although we might think of ourselves as kind of, well, at least we're not deforesting and we're trying to plant back, 
at 11% tree cover, we're one of the most poorly forested nations in the world. And that has come about through active deforestation that we and our ancestors did over many hundreds of years, whether it was to build ships in the Elizabethan era and then clear it for uh, the land for sheep. We also have that history and it's worth recognising that because we really have to be careful about uh, how we are framing these things. So one contextual point. And then I guess the point for hope is that sometimes people I think that work in the environment movement can feel that they are the only ones that care and the only ones that really understand it can feel very frustrating and very emotional but actually there is a groundswell of people around the world and certainly from a WWF perspective we work really hard with uh, businesses with indigenous people and the traditional people that call the Amazon home to really fight for their voice and their livelihoods as well and I think it's in that coming together that we will really see that the change and reversal of fortunes happen. That's a great kind of move into you know what can be done and what is being done because as you say it's not just a a small group of environmentalists concerning themselves. There is a an acceleration in terms of the kind of things that have been done and the kind of co- collaborations that can make a difference. I wonder if we could talk about some specific um, initiatives at all. Stephen, you, you clearly see the situation very clearly. Uh, talk to me a little bit about some of the initiatives that you think can make a difference and that other people should join. It's pretty clear that Tesco is squarely aimed at uh, deforestation-free commodities and deforestation-free meat, which is uh, often where the commodities are embedded, particularly soy. So uh, meat, fish, poultry, egg, basically most animal products which are fed on soya as part of their diet are part of this uh, global supply chain, which has the kind of uh, deforestation uh, challenge to to deal with now it's it's very difficult and even more so than palmo which in itself is extremely challenging but it, particularly in soy um, because it is an embedded product i.e it's not a, a product that is directly included as an ingredient but rather it's something that the animal has ate whilst it's been growing we have a particular challenge with transparency in in, in the industry and Neither Tesco nor any retailer uh, in the UK and and generally uh, on an even wider scale in Europe and worldwide can necessarily see the origin of all the soy which is in their supply chain. And this is something we've really got to change, change the way the system works. At the moment, commodity trade is facilitated by a certain level of opaqueness, uh, commoditization, of course, that's the, the, the name on, on the tin, as it were, uh, whereby all soy and all of these other forest risk commodities are traded as if they're identical. It's, it's uh, traded as a commodity. But of course, when the commodity is associated with deforestation in this case, we can't maintain that level of uh commoditization of opaqueness in the supply chain we need to see where it came from where it was grown how it was grown potentially even who grew it and where they grew it um, in terms of a, a map of the farm and the the farmer's name and so on we don't necessarily need all of that level of detail for every uh, soybean that comes into Tesco's supply chain but in some cases we're probably going to require uh, something uh, roughly in that um, 
in that ballpark, that level of data, that level of detail. So uh, we're working very hard with uh, WWF UK and other industry peers and other organizations to really focus on this transparency and drive the uh, transparency in the sector. And one of the initiatives that we've came up with a, a couple of years ago and developed and launched in November last year, in fact, uh, the Tesco CEO uh, launched it in November uh, and that's the UK Soy Manifesto. And this basically sets an agenda for sustainable soy in the UK. Our target is that this is going to be met by the entire supply chain, by the, the entire sector, by 2025. And the important point to realise here is that the, the, the manifesto um, represents around 60% of soy consumption coming into the UK. So it's a very big chunk of the market. But the only way, even at that scale, the only way that the, the manifesto and all the people who have signed up to it, all the companies that have signed up to it, the only way that it's powerful is by working together. That's the only way we can achieve any change because even Tesco, as big as it is, is a very, very small proportion of global soya consumption. And even the UK is only, I think, uh, around a, a percent or a few percent of uh, global soya consumption. So we are very leveraged in terms of our political impact and we're trying to be as coordinated as we can be to drive this message across the entire supply chain and even you know right back to the farmers right back to the traders right back to everybody else who, who's involved in the supply chain to say that we can't go on with this current uh, lack of transparency you know we, we need to take a step forward now and supply chains need to um, firmly establish themselves of uh, decoupled from uh, deforestation so that we can say hand on hearts you know uh, soy is no longer linked to deforestation and neither the other forest risk commodities. Sarah is the collaboration working beyond the UK is there work internationally that brings the best actors together and what kind of work is that in the area of transparency? Yeah, it's a really great question. And um, we're really lucky in WWF to be part of a, a global network of offices. So um, we obviously work with colleagues around the world, particularly in the case of soy with WWF Brazil and other big what we would call market countries. So places like the US and other countries in Europe to kind of work out what the best solutions um, are on, on the ground that will really drive that change. And it's, it's really interesting because when you start talking about some of the collaborative forums that Stephen refers to and um, that is kind of replicated there's forums up at a UN level um, and there's a lot of global commitments that have been made in fact the traders uh, so people who um, buy and sell soy and these commodities made a commitment at COP last year to halt deforestation really really significant and that is kind of coming through uh, in, in this year's COP as well to see what has actually happened so there's there's a huge amount of forums and discussion uh, that, that is going on but I think where we are really focused is where can we actually make change because there is also 
always a risk that we sit around and we talk about how difficult it is and we scratch our heads and we try and find solutions. And then we all leave a meeting feeling like we've done a really great job. But actually, um, if it's not impacting change on the ground, we're not making real progress. And I think that's where some of the work that Stephen's referring to is really positive, because it is all about kind of taking those incremental steps. And, you know, if there was a silver bullet for this solution, my goodness, uh, someone would have been shooting it. It's definitely um, not easy. So it's going to take a a myriad of actors uh, working not just to get what we would call clean deforestation supply chains into markets like the UK, but also to transform the whole way that those organisations involved in agriculture actually think about this and think about how acceptable it is to have deforestation in their supply chains and what that then means for working constructively with farmers on the ground. Because at the end of all of this, my organisation do a lot of work, Tesco, other market actors can do a lot of work, but the power of this lies with the farmers and those who are clearing the land as well. And that is where actually legislation plays an incredibly powerful part. So Stephen referred earlier to the part of the big challenge we've been seeing in Brazil has been particularly with the current government over there. Sometimes you do need government intervention to protect um, wild spaces, to make sure that people on that land are treated fairly and made sure that they can still have a livelihood, but just to ensure that those boundaries are set. And here in the UK, there is a piece of legislation that we're waiting to see the kind of final outputs of called the due diligence legislation, which will mandate uh, all companies in the UK over a certain size to be reporting on their deforestation risk and to be transparent about their supply chains. So there's a lot of different activity happening. And really, it's a case of laddering it all up, sticking it together and making sure we can really focus on what's important, which is ultimately allowing those trees to stay in the ground, stay rooted, keep delivering for for us and for nature. So here, I mean, it's the the practical behaviour change, the the and the the incentives and structural changes that enable that, that is, I guess, you know, the point you're making, so important. Otherwise, it is, if you're not careful, people talking about the issue and feeling good about talking about it, but not actually changing things on the ground. I joined Cafe Direct ten years ago, and Cafe Direct's been working on a, a reforestation project for uh, twelve years, I think it is now, in Peru, and. The thing that was always struck me about that piece of work was it wasn't even in the supply chain. It was deforestation for uh, adjacent subsistence farmers who needed the wood. And it was then the impact of that deforestation effectively further up the mountain that meant the soil for coffee cultivation was inadequate. So it was impacting on our supply chain, but it wasn't actually in our supply chain. And the amount of thought and consideration to help a community outside of your supply chain stop cutting down wood was astonishing. And I know the people on the ground, you know, you had local communities thinking you're there to take their land from them, not to help them change. And then working out a way of creating financial incentives so that as a subsistence farmer, you can have an income without cutting down the wood and a livelihood uh, was incredibly challenging. But I think we've got to the point now where that's, successful enough that we're now rolling that out across Peru. Um, so hopefully we found a way of making some kind of difference at a level, but 
it, it's it's quite ingrained in people's behavior isn't it to to um as you say over many many centuries and generations to see the role of wood in a different way what can we do as people on the streets of the uk visiting our supermarkets and so on and so forth what can we all do as individuals to to help yeah i think there's a lot we can do as individuals certainly the solution is not is not going to rise because of the actions of one person, one company, one government, one NGO. Uh, it's all of us working together. From Tesco's perspective, we certainly got a, a big role to play and we recognise that responsibility and take it very seriously. At Tesco, we don't think that sustainability should really come at a cost to customers. So we want to ensure that all our customers have, for example, access to affordable, healthy and sustainable food. But of course, that requires transformational change across the food system. So we're doing all we can to help customers make better choices in store. And an example is our recent Better Baskets campaign with WWF. Here we provided customers with healthy and sustainable meals and some exciting new products like the meat and veg range in order to reduce the impact of the average uh, shopping basket in the UK. Of course, it's very important to bring it back to kind of metrics or measurements or context which the average person entering a supermarket can understand uh, and not have to uh, uh, spend hours studying to to actually understand the uh, process. It needs to be very simple, very straightforward, very clear. So we've also set a target to increase our sales of plant-based meat alternatives by 300%. And we're the only major supermarket to have publicly supported a transition to less meat and dairy consumption by 2030. So I think all of these uh, collectively can play a huge role. But again, we do need all of the stakeholders in the supply chain from the retailers to the manufacturers to the traders to the uh, feed manufacturers to the right back to the farmers to to play uh, their role in this. Um, what 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 is really fundamentally a, a systemic change in the system? It, it's it's not just kind of one little thing here or there. It's a complete overhaul of um, how the system, how the food system operates. And Sarah, can you build on these points of? systemic change and and helping me as well to think about what I should be doing when I go into my supermarket. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really worth recognizing that it's it's really hard as a citizen and obviously as a customer, as we're perceived when we go into retailers, um, to, to know what to do. And I, I think Stephen is absolutely right in that we go into these big brands because we trust them and we trust them to be making the sustainable choice just the standard choice. So I do think that is something that people quite often rightly expect. But there are differences that individuals can make in behaviour change, as we know, through things like kind of green travel and you know, we can take analogies from there um, to, to apply that to what we eat as well. And, you know, it's really important to recognise that retailers are there to um, serve their customers and to give us as their customers what we want. And so if we start changing just a few things in our shopping basket to indicate that actually we do want healthier, more sustainable food. It does make a real difference. And I know particularly in a cost of living crisis, that can feel very, very challenging for a lot of people. 
But the simplicity of eating a healthier, sustainable diet and one that is at lower risk of, of kind of some of these deforestation issues is the good news is it's all about what a healthier diet is as well. So it's it's getting those beans, pulses and lentils in as your protein sources. It's uh, fresh fruit and vegetables um, where you can afford them. And it's really about having that rainbow plate that is good for you and good for the planet. It is about kind of finding a route through to making those choices easy, which in both a cost pressured environment and a time pressured environment that we all find ourselves in can be very hard. But I would encourage people that even one or two different choices in a week really stack up. And we often get asked as an organisation, you know, do you think everyone should go vegan? And we go, well, actually, it's about that balance in the system. You know, animal agriculture has a role to play in the nutrient cycle and in the healthy food system. But what we definitely do know is that we are all consuming a little bit too much protein just from a dietary guidelines perspective. Um, And so getting that down a little bit, getting some more of what we would call plant-based sources into your diet. It can either be some of those um, kind of fake meats or it can be the beans and pulses and lentils and really will start to make a difference. So I would encourage everyone in that. And then the second thing I would encourage everyone to think about is um, acting as a citizen and in a political space as well, because some of the legislation that we've seen coming through, for example, on deforestation has been because people have shown they care about it. And therefore, politicians are acting and making a difference. And there's different things they can do to help protect and make it easier for companies like Tesco to do the right thing. So whether it's setting what we would call core environmental standards for all food that's sold in the UK, um, that makes a real difference. And the way you influence that as an individual is by talking to your politicians, is by using your vote in a particular way. And a lot of this can be done on a local level too. So city councils have a big role to play in their procurement standards. What is your child getting fed in school? You know, these are all tools we have at our fingertips. So it's about making those changes where you can, not beating yourself up if you're not absolutely perfect and living the ideal lifestyle. Because if we all make those changes, we will see a shift uh, in direction. And, And that's really what this is all about. Is there anything else you'd like to cover? You're sitting there thinking, God, we haven't got to that yet. Yeah, I was just going to touch on a couple of the multi-stakeholder initiatives that Tesco participates in, uh, one of which is the Consumer Goods Forum Forest Positive Coalition. And this coalition is a coalition of of some of the biggest uh, retailers and uh, manufacturers, food manufacturers in the world, So uh, Nestle, Unilever, PepsiCo, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Carrefour, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're doing collectively, we meet very frequently. It's a huge, um, (laughs) very demanding on my time uh, and all of our time uh, of all the people who are involved. But I think it's very important that we're trying to drive this kind of international consensus on what sustainable supply chains look like, Again, we're trying to coordinate uh, across entire supply chains, trying to drive really clean suppliers in in clean supply chains, so completely decoupling uh, deforestation from those supply chains. And a couple of the uh, working groups which Tesco co-chairs, firstly, myself, I co-chair the Soy Working Group, 
And there we're focusing on methodologies, for example, working with the traders to focus on methodologies for growing area risk classifications. So trying to divide up source regions where, where these commodities are grown, where soy is grown in particular, into lower or higher risk areas so we can have the appropriate level of detail of uh, origin information, which I touched upon earlier. And also uh, the other working group, which Tesco co-chairs is a landscape working group. And here it's very interesting that we've managed to develop this kind of collaborative model for landscape scale investment. And just as you were referring to John earlier on, you know, th these are really where we need to go. It's the direction we need to travel because often the uh, impact on your supply chain will not be directly within your supply chain, as it were, not directly on the farm. As you, as you mentioned, it was farmers outside of your conceptual supply chain who were deforesting, but that was having a direct impact on your on your business and, and on, uh, on the provision of commodities. So it's very important that we develop this model for all these huge companies to collectively identify landscapes, priority landscapes, and say, look, we need a coordinated approach. We need to engage government and farmers and traders and everybody working in this landscape uh, to figure out the best investment strategy. And the final thing I, I was just going to touch on is uh, an initiative called the Responsible Commodities Facility. Now, Tesco, along with Sainsbury's and Waitrose, have been the kind of founding investors uh, for this facility. And what it intends to do is, is to make loans to farmers, loans at a, an attractive interest rate. So um, in terms of the interest that farmers have to pay back, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attractive rate of interest. And these loans are made to the farmers, but only after the farmer has signed up contractually um, to zero deforestation, zero conversion of natural habitat, and also to, to be monitored on a regular basis to demonstrate that they are fulfilling that contractual commitment. So it is a, very much a financial mechanism. It's designed to to provide incentives directly to the farmers so they can see another alternative way of increasing their income rather than going into the forest again. Uh, and we certainly hope that it can achieve significant scale over the coming years and possibly be even applied to other commodities. But um, yeah, so Tesco and the other UK retailers are very, very optimistic about that. And I know that WWF also participates in that and, and are equally, uh, I think, uh, enthusiastic about the potential for this kind of direct incentives from the supply chain to the producers because of course um, the producers shouldn't necessarily be left alone to deliver these public goods we all need to support production landscapes and farms and farmers at the start of the supply chain. So I think in terms of final wrap-up comments from me, what I would say is if you're listening to this and you're part of a food business, you might be surprised about where you can make a difference on deforestation. So if you are fortunate enough to have a sustainability team, do seek them out and ask them what you could be doing in your role because this is an issue that is going to take all of us to solve as I think you've heard loud and clear today. 
And if you're not in the food system, do think about some of those actions that we've talked about taking as a citizen, whether it's small changes in your diet or getting involved locally in food groups with your local council, with procurement standards, or also at a national level. Deforestation is a really tricky issue, but it is something that we can all make a difference on. And by working together, we are going to make that change. Thanks to our listeners for joining. And do head to the Cafe Direct website and find this episode if you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed. And please make sure you rate and subscribe on the listening platform you use, as it really does help us to spread the word about the podcast.